This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, Learning the Real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org. This morning's scripture reading is from Luke 5, 17 to 26. Be encouraged by the reading of God's word. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up to the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, good morning. Thank you, Miss Leah. Uh, I'm Jeremy, one of the pastors here at the Axis. And once again, welcome. I'm really glad that you're here with us uh, today, here this morning. Um, Before I begin uh, with today's sermon, uh, I'd like to thank those who've helped us in our office build out recently. Um, As you know, our Axis kids have grown. Uh, You're being fruitful and multiplying. Well done. Good and faithful. Um, and, uh, so our offices were back here. Our kids, uh, have kicked us out and, uh, so we have no offices and we have worked for a couple weeks now to build out our offices where the kids used to be. Um, and, uh, so thanks for your, thanks for your help. Those who've been able to, to lend a hand, hopefully we'll be able to finish that up this week. Um, and also for those uh, who have recently come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, Uh, We would love to celebrate your baptism on Easter. We're going to be having a baptism service here. And uh, we would would absolutely just cherish the opportunity uh, to help you uh, in one of the the very first things that Jesus asks of those who come to faith in him, uh, to to see you faithfully step into obedience there and be baptized. Um, What a celebration that's going to be. So if you have any questions, insecurities, fears, uh, as random as they may be, like, is the water cold? You know, no, it's really, really warm, actually. Very warm. Um, uh, didn't used to be that way. It is now. Um, that's why I point that out almost every time is for years, it was just room temperature and that's pretty chilly sometimes. Uh, but anyway, uh, whatever the questions that you may have, just find me, uh, and we'll talk about it. You can also, I think, sign up in the, uh, there at the welcome desk out in the lobby there, but, uh, we would love to see you uh, follow Christ in obedience uh, and be baptized. What a privilege that would be. Um, <clears throat> well, uh, I invite you now to turn to Luke chapter 5. Uh, we're going to be looking at 17 to 26, the passage that Miss Leah just read for us, the chap- chapter 5 of um, Luke. 
So if you uh, don't have a Bible, there should be some under the uh, seats there in front of you. Um, Feel free to take that one, write your name in it, make it yours, take it home, read it, spend some time with it. Um, This is our 13th week in our study, our verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of Luke, a time that we've entitled The Real Jesus, where we're looking not at culture, uh, not at the Simpsons or the Family Guy, but we're looking at Scripture trying to discover who Jesus is who the real Jesus is. And I say the 13th week, and you might be thinking, wait a minute, I was here last Sunday. We didn't go through this. Well, uh, we, we took a time and uh, spent, as our annual rhythms are here at the Axis, is during Christmas, we celebrate Advent, the four weeks leading up to Christmas. And then we, we have several weeks of Fight the Drift, where we address certain issues that are pertinent to our church family, um, as we try to preach caution to certain areas, encouragement in other areas. And so we've just concluded those two series, and now we get to jump back into the wonderful, comfy pages of a gospel uh, here in the New Testament. I cannot wait, cannot wait to spend more and more time together in the gospel of Luke. Um, We point out the real Jesus, and we do that because um, if you were like me, you said yes to a Jesus that didn't exist. Uh, And if you were unlike me, you said no to a Jesus that Jesus would also say no to. And so our hope through Luke is that you look at the real Jesus in the pages of Scripture and that your yes is to the Jesus that exists. And I honestly cannot imagine you looking at the real Jesus and saying no to him. I just can't imagine. And so our our hope here. Is to, is to preach the real Jesus, um, particularly now through our time in the gospel of Luke. Uh, Luke is written by, guess what his name is? Luke. And he was a doctor. He was a physician. Uh, but he was also a very uh, well-respected, highly respected historian. He was a highly educated man. And he was a second-generation Gentile Christian. Second generation, meaning... There was a man or a woman who met Jesus face-to-face and who believed him, became a Christian. And then that person turned and told Luke about Jesus a few years later. And Luke believed Jesus and became a Christian, second generation. But he was also a Gentile, second generation Gentile Christian. And so Luke writes as one who was very aware of the division between races very aware of the division between religious cultures, very aware of the division that existed between the Jews and then everybody else. That's one of the reasons, one of the very significant reasons why he wrote this gospel, this narrative, this historic account that we have here. He wanted all Jews and Gentiles to know that everyone, all of humanity, all of us have been invited into a very personal, real practically helpful relationship with God that is provided through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so this is our desire. This is my desire for us today, for for us to know that we've been invited into a very personal, highly practical relationship with God that's been provided to us and for us by faith in God's Son, Jesus Christ, regardless of our past. 
regardless of our present and regardless of our fear and insecurities and anxieties of the future, regardless of our race, regardless of our income, regardless of our education, all of us have been invited into a personal and practical relationship with God that's possible only, only, only through Jesus Christ. I want you to know that you have been invited into this, but I also desire that you respond to this invitation in simple faith, believing Jesus. This is my hope for us today, all of us. This is my hope for myself, is that we will believe Jesus more when we leave this building, this old warehouse. So to set some context, as it's been several weeks uh, I think the third week of November was the last time we spent in Luke. So it kind of sets some context here for us um, in our study through Luke. Jesus has taught and he has absolutely astonished crowds, okay? Just left them blown away with his teaching, with the, the authority of which he taught as well. But then he's also freed captives. And he's also silenced and sent demons running in fear. He's healed many people. He's performed many miracles. And Jesus even has now called certain disciples to come and follow him and give their lives to following him. And then Jesus healed a leper, completely healed a leper, restored the leper, no longer a leper. And now for today, let's look at one of my favorite passages in the Bible, Luke chapter five, starting in verse 17. Here we go. On one of those days, as Jesus was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Okay, so there's Jesus, and he's teaching, and then you have all the religious uh, leaders, and I'm sure many, many others, sitting there listening Jesus is standing and teaching, and they are there listening. And as we're going to see, these leaders and others from the area have gathered in a home, not the temple, but in a home to hear Jesus teach. The Pharisees were a very uptight religious group. They took themselves way too seriously. And they placed so much stress on strict compliance of the law, but then also compliance to these minuscule, man-made, detailed regulations, regulations that they themselves had added to God's law over the years. And the teachers of the law that are mentioned here were those who spent their lives teaching these mostly man-made rules and regulations to others. They were lawyers. They were a professional class of lawyers and teachers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. Now, notice that there weren't just a few of these leaders sitting in this home listening to Jesus. No, there were Pharisees and teachers of the law, not just from Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. Look carefully. You see, the religious elite came from every village of Galilee, every village of Judea, and every village of Jerusalem. Now, think with me through this. Think this with me. All right, so Luke is a historian. He gives us these detailed accounts for a reason. He doesn't waste words. He's seeking to be accurate here. These leaders don't just happen to show up to a home. 
maybe the temple, if it's like bring a friend, like high attendance day at the temple, like maybe you would have all these cats in one room at the same time, but not someone's home. So the way that I understand this, I see this as an intentional meetup to investigate the things that they hear about this Jesus guy. And by sharing this with us, again, Luke, the historian, is preparing us to experience and expect a a hostile reaction from these religious leaders to the teaching and action of Jesus. But as these curious leaders lean in to listen, as they lean in to learn, as they lean in a little bit more to investigate who this Jesus fellow is, they're not going to be disappointed. As Luke tells us, Jesus is full of the power of the Lord. Friends, this is one of the beautiful things, the remarkable things about Jesus. This is one of the things that make Jesus so special. The real Jesus is he's not merely a man. He's filled with the power of God working in him and through him. He's not just a man. He's the God man. He's 100% God, 100% man. Friends, this is the real Jesus. Now let's see what the real Jesus does. Verse 18, behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. That is the perfect place for anyone who is in need to be laid before Jesus. That's it. Friend, that's what you need. That's what I need. We need to simply be laid before Jesus And you know what's crazy is we easily lie down in front of a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a car, a home, a job, a raise. We're looking to be taken care of and helped by lying down down before so many things. And the Bible calls these things idols. And we go to them for our identity. We go to them for our meaning. We go to them to be satisfied and helped. And they can't. They weren't intended to. Only Jesus can help people like us. Only Jesus. So these friends knew what they were doing. They were helping, truly helping their friend. But, verse 19, finding no way to bring him in, implying that they looked beyond just the front door. So they looked all around, right? Finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof. So there's lots of desperation here. So they go up on the roof and they let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus with his bed. All right. So wouldn't you agree with me here that you would need a very large hole in any given roof in order to lower a grown man on a cot or bed or anything to lower him through the roof in such a way that he doesn't whoops slip off the bed. Right. So you're talking a massive hole like in this in this roof. These men knew something about Jesus. They knew that this was worth it. They knew that it was worth the effort. It was worth digging under or going over. We have to get in here. It's worth this work. It's worth not walking away and giving up so easily. It's worth trying to figure out how on earth do I get my friend in there to this man. And notice also particularly for you who are Christians. 
Notice that they knew that they had no power in and of themselves to help their friend. They knew they didn't have the power to help their friend, but Jesus did. So they made it their life's ambition in this moment to figure out any way possible to get them to Jesus. Now, we're going to talk more about this later. But this is what it means to be a Christian. Someone who has a passion to see other people brought to Jesus, not giving up so easily. So they open the roof and they lower the man down into the presence of Jesus. And verse 20, and when Jesus saw their faith, their faith, the faith of the friends who were probably still up on the roof looking through this hole, right? I'm sure there's debris flying everywhere. Like what in the world is happening, right? But seeing their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. When Jesus sees the extent that these men are going to, when, when, when he sees just how much these men believe that he can help their friend, he tells the man, your sins are forgiven right then, right there, forgiven. Now, you may think, well, that's good and all, but he still needs to walk, right? But what Jesus does here is wonderful. What he does here is is brilliant. He forgives the man's sins. Jesus took care of the man's true need, forgiveness of his sins. This is perhaps the reason the men carried this man to this house on this day and lowered him down to Jesus. Maybe it was to be forgiven, not necessarily healed. You see, for those who have certain infirmities in this day, they couldn't just go to the temple. They weren't welcomed. They can't seek salvation as easily as those who are healthy. But the thing about the real Jesus, and we're going to learn more about this next Sunday as we continue through Luke 5, is he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous but sinners, implying the sick. I've come to call sinners to repentance. So Jesus forgives this man. He does it away from the temple. He does it without the man performing any required religious act. He simply forgives the man's sins. Now again, these religious leaders study theology. They know scripture. They understand certain doctrines, particularly there in the Old Testament, in the Torah. So notice in verse 21, and the scribes and the Pharisees began to question amongst themselves, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Wow, that's good theology, by the way. That's really good theology. Though we know in the Old Testament it says that a prophet or a priest could forgive sins in the name of God. But the question is whether Jesus had this prophetic authority to do so. If not, he was falsely claiming to act on behalf of God. So these men were right. But notice that Jesus claims the higher authority. Uh, You see in verse 24, he claims to be the son of man. And the son of man is the one who's associated with God's final judgment on mankind. And you can read about this in Daniel 7. These gentlemen, these lawyers, 
of the law would know Daniel chapter 7. Keenly aware of Daniel 7. Jesus used the term son of man to prove something to these men. Well, they said this sort of amongst themselves. Matthew even said that they whispered among themselves and even Jesus discerned their hearts. And you see here in verse 22, it says, when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why don't you just ask me? Why, why are you questioning in your hearts? Like, just say it out loud. I'm right here. Why are you doubting? Why, why are you wondering? Just feel free. Ask me what it is that you want to ask me. And he speaks to their questioning hearts. And he says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk? Well, both are difficult, Jesus. Neither would be easy. Which is easier? I mean, well, that was the point Jesus is getting at here. So Jesus is essentially saying it's much more difficult to forgive sins than heal someone, but to you it seems more difficult to heal a paralyzed person because you've actually got to see it. You've got to see the proof. So for your sake, I will prove my power over sickness and sin by telling this particular gentleman to get up and walk. And so Jesus' response is to give indirect proof of his authority that he did possess divine authority to heal and to forgive sin. And he says this in verse 24, but that you may know that the son of man, there's that title, so that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to take care of your greatest need. So that you would know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralyzed man, the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately... He rose up before them, picked up what it was that he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. Now, imagine with me what this would have been like to experience. I mean, this man, you've probably seen this man time and time again. Dozens of times, if not hundreds of times, on the side of the road begging at the entrance of the temple, though never in the temple, needy, can't walk. This gentleman stands up. As if he'd been faking it for 40 years. He stands up without a limp and he walks out. He walks out a forgiven man. He's been declared righteous. He is healthy. This miracle of healing validates, in fact, the power of Jesus to forgive sins. Now, as you imagine what this would have been like, you can probably resonate with verse 26, and amazement seized them all. And they glorified God, and they were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. So the house is packed with people, packed with people, religious people, common folk as well. And a paralytic with several friends can't get their buddy to Jesus. And so they... They do the somewhat logical thing and find an opening somewhere. They do this ridiculous thing and they pull apart the roof and they lower their friend down into the presence of Jesus. And on account of the man's faithful friends, Jesus heals this man. He tells this man then to pick up his bed, carry it with him all the way to his house. It's a story. So what does this story tell you about you? 
What does this story tell me about me? What does this tell us about ourselves? Well, a way I like to answer this sort of question is by asking another question. Who are you in this story? Who are we? I mean, think about it. Look there in front of you at the words that make up this story. Where are you in this story? Who are you in this story? Well, first, many of us can find ourselves in the audience of the skeptical, the unbelieving, the proud. Many of us can find ourselves even in the religious camp. You may be near the real Jesus here at the Axis, but you aren't sure if what you hear is true. It seems too good to be true. It doesn't fit your religious category. You're good at following rules and even enforcing them. And there's an element of pride if you're really honest with yourself. There's an element of pride that you often feel when others can't obey as good as you can. And you've got all your theological answers neatly organized and aligned. You have the grace of God and you've got Jesus and you've got the love of God all systematized and categorized. You perhaps have what Paul warned young Timothy of in 2 Timothy 3, 5 and 7, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, always learning but never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Friend, if this is you, if this resonates in any way at all, I encourage you to continue to do what these men did and draw near to the real Jesus. They showed up where he was. So I encourage you to continue to press in, to lean in, to gather and to listen. And perhaps God will surprise you with what you learn about Jesus. Perhaps he's going to surprise you about what you learn about yourself. I encourage you, friend, to pray for humility. Pray for soul awareness. Pray for self-awareness. Please pray for a knowledge of the truth. And I would love for one of these days for you to leave our gatherings and because of what God does in your heart, you no longer have a category for what you just experienced. You no longer have God in this little religious box and you say the same thing that these people did, amazement and awe. We've experienced extraordinary things today. Well, next, many of us are the unforgiven man who happens to be paralyzed. Let's not focus on the physical need here. Rather, let's focus on his spiritual need. After all, this is what Jesus was mostly concerned with. And friend, the same is true for you today. Friend, sin has left you in a place where you can't help yourself. You can't help yourself. You can't help but sin. And you can't help get yourself away from your sin. You can't help deal with the consequences of your sin. You can't heal yourself in the way that you need healing. You're never going to be good enough to heal your brokenness and forgive your sins. You're never going to do enough right to undo the bad that you've done and that you've had done to you. Never. Never. You need Jesus. Friend, you need Jesus. You must experience Jesus. Your sins have eternal consequences. Scripture is very, very clear on this. Your sins have eternal consequences. If you're unforgiven, 
If you do not believe Jesus, if you haven't been regenerated by faith in Christ, you're going to hell. Why? Because your sins have consequences. Your sin has broken your relationship with God. And it is impossible for you to save yourself. If it was possible for you to save yourself, then why did Jesus come? To be one of the options. He came, as he said in John 14, 6, to be the way, the truth, and the life. Reiterating it, he says, no one comes to the Father except through me. That means your goodness isn't a caveat to what he said. There's not an asterisk that says, yeah, but have you seen Jeremy's righteousness? No. Your sin has consequences. You see, Jesus came in the world to save you from yourself. He came to save you from your sin. Friend, you must be saved. You must be forgiven. You must be redeemed. You must be pardoned. And you can't do this. This is the power of God at work in you. Jesus came and suffered as 1 Peter 3.18. It says, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for you. The righteous for the unrighteous. Why would he do that? In order for him to bring us to God. This is your greatest need. Your greatest need is to be brought to God. Just like this man having faithful friends. We need to be brought to God. And my hope for you is that you would no longer pretend that you don't need a Savior and that you don't need Jesus' help, but that you would humble yourself, humble your heart. Friend, you need to be forgiven. You must be forgiven. Believe Jesus today. Trust him. Trust in what he has done for you. And you will be forgiven right then, right there, right here, right now, just like the man in the story. You too can be forgiven. You see, our greatest problem isn't a physical element. Our greatest problem is sin. Lack of faith in Jesus. Lack of faith in the goodness of God. And when we call out to Jesus, seeking him for deliverance, friend, he responds. He took care of our sins by his perfect life, his substitutionary death in our place, and his resurrection. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, It was for our sake that he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. I love to, to fill in the, the proper nouns here. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, though Jesus never sinned, he knew no sin, so that in Jesus, you and I might become good enough to be back into relationship with God, that we might be forgiven, that we would be made the righteousness of God, fit now for heaven. I encourage you to call out for this faith and to believe Jesus, turning from these false hopes where you've been lying down in front of these idols of pleasure and fun, and even wonderful things that aren't sinful things that you make into ultimate things, what the Bible calls these idols, and that you would turn to Jesus and find what it is there that you're looking for, that you'll be forgiven. Well, now next, I know that many of us are the friends who help others experience the change of heart that we have, and they get this by seeing Jesus. 
Friend, the most loving thing you can do for your friend is to tell them about the real Jesus. The, the best way to care for your family is to tell them about Jesus. Hey, dad, mom, the best thing you can do to your kids is to tell them about Jesus. It's not to try to be a perfect parent. It's to tell them about Jesus and the forgiveness that he offers to you and to your kids. You want to be a good roommate, a good coworker, a good neighbor. Tell these people about Jesus. Be faithful in this. All the while, we must remain before Jesus ourselves. And I have seen, don't miss this, please. There's been so many in the Christian camp who have moved from an amazement with Jesus, fascinated with Jesus, in love with Jesus, making much of Jesus, drift to proud, cynical, angry, angsty, bitter, religious people. And they talk about others as sinners, just wicked people. And they don't realize that they're sinners too. They're still in need of Jesus every day. They still must have the gospel. They still must have grace. They still must believe it every day, every moment of every day. And so if we go help others and overlook ourselves and assume the gospel ourselves, it'll lead to much pride and unhealth and soul sickness. So friend, don't ever outgrow or outthink, outmature or outhealth your need for lying before Jesus. Stay there before Jesus. Don't let the enemy trick you into thinking that you need to go somewhere else. Stay before Jesus. Well, don't you think after all these years, stay before Jesus. But I have this seminary degree, stay before Jesus. That's it. You know, we've all probably been on airplanes. Most of us have been on airplanes. And they say, in the, in the case of uh, loss of cabin pressure, the, and you're already like on Netflix, right? You're already streaming something. You have no idea what they're saying. You just see this thing all of a sudden drop in your lap. You're like, oh, you're like, oh yeah, she's going through that thing. Well, they tell you to put the mask on yourself first and then care for those beside you. Parents, friends, isn't that difficult to imagine? This is the same for us. We must take care of ourselves so that we can take care of others. And taking care of ourselves is staying before Jesus. And we can easily drift to being the proud religious when we no longer feel our need to simply lie before Jesus' feet there. So we can stay low before Jesus by seeking, intentionally pursuing the way of humility. You don't just happen upon humility. It's an intentional effort to count others before yourself, to look out for others' needs before your own. It's an intentional effort. But it is also a response of a changed heart, the power of God working there within you. And you can also stay low before Jesus there at his feet by pursuing him daily in Scripture and also by praying and seeking his wisdom and direction and guidance and by repenting early and often. Friends, this is what it's like to lay before Jesus on a mat and if you're needy and you see yourself that way, you'll be doing these things and many more things. But doing these things isn't what makes a Christian a Christian. Jesus saves you. He makes you a Christian. But he also gives you this desire to want to know him more and to be changed more and more by him.
So Christian, if it's been a while since you've experienced the joy and freedom of repentance, I invite you to this today. I invite you to enter into the joy of lying before Jesus and not some other idol, but come get before Jesus this morning to repent today. Friend, there is your freedom. That's the fun you've been looking for in the Christian life. It's found in repentance of discovering in Christ what it was that you could be, that could be found somewhere else. I thought it was in lying before this thing or that thing or the other thing for my identity and meaning and value and worth. No, 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 no. It's in Jesus. This is the work of repentance. Christian, also we find ourselves here. We're the rope in the story. Christians are ropes, just ropes, but significant ropes. You see, we can't change our friends. We can't change our families. We can't change anyone. But who can? God, Jesus, absolutely. We can't. He can. So the answer isn't in us trying to change others. The answer is living in such a way that other people are able to discover Jesus through our actions and through our words. We're to use our words and actions to help get people before Jesus, just to see the real Jesus. Therefore, we are the rope. All that we do in life as Christians is to help in some way lower people into the presence of Jesus. That's it. But are we desperate to see others changed by Jesus? Desperate enough to remove the roof? Do we have faith that God can change others to change our friends and change our family? Friend, are you leading them to Jesus or simply trying to get them to start acting better? Whatever that may be. And there's a big difference between those two. You're not their savior. Jesus is. You're the rope. Get them to Jesus and leave them there. He's so much better at changing them than we are. This is our role. And finally, what does this say about Jesus? This, after all, is really the most important issue here for us to consider. Knowing more about ourselves, believing more in ourselves will not save us. <clears throat> but believing more about Jesus and knowing more about Jesus, this will. So what does this say about Jesus? Friends, this tells us that the real Jesus extends grace to needy and broken people. This tells us that the real Jesus absolutely gets a thrill out of forgiven people. He loves to forgive. He came into the world to save sick and needy sinners like me and just like you. First Timothy 1.15 says, you can anchor on this fact. This saying is trustworthy. Count on it. This deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So friend, are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? Have you been reborn? Not, are you religious? I didn't ask if you gave money or if you have Christian merch in your closet or stickers on your car or that you only listen to certain music or that you're refraining from tattoos or... or really? I'm not asking anything like that. Are you a Christian? Are you a Christian? That is the question. Have you been regenerated by God? Have you been born again? Have you been saved? Friends, this is what you need and this is what you're looking for. Nothing else will grant you satisfaction. 
Nothing else will grant you satisfaction. Experiencing the forgiveness of your sins. Knowing God personally. Being brought to God by Jesus. This will satisfy you. He's not a waste of your time. He's not a waste of your thoughts. He's not a waste of your concerns. And I do encourage you to think on these things. Thinking through these things is how one becomes a Christian. Christian, dwelling on these things is how you become happy. Happy in this life. A lot of fun to be with is one who is being floored by the grace of God through the person and work of Jesus. So now we're going to celebrate this work of Christ for us, acknowledging the saving activity of Jesus for us together by sharing in communion. We're going to be thinking and dwelling on what God has done for us, the forgiveness of our sins. Our sins have been forgiven. Get up and go home. Your sins are forgiven. What a joy, what a blessing this is. And we're going to remember this by sharing in this Lord's table. My encouragement is you to get low before the Lord this morning and take this with much humility. We have bread and we have wine and juice. And as we share in the bread, which represents the, the life of Christ and his body, and also the wine, which represents his death for us there on the cross, as we, as we share in this this morning, be reminded once more that that Jesus has completed all that is necessary for you to be forgiven, for you to be brought back to God. Friend, he is the faithful friend. Jesus is the faithful friend in the story. He's the one who brings us to God. And so to break it down simply, communion is acknowledging what Christ has done to pick us up on our mat, take us over, and give us to God. And he did it by taking our place. It's called grace. You don't deserve it. You can't earn it. And you can't mess it up. I ask you to believe it. I ask you to have faith in Jesus this morning. And Christians, as you come and take this meal, be reminded that this is the God's grace, only God's grace, and that <laughs> you've been forgiven. You've been forgiven. Absolutely forgiven. No guilt, no shame. You have been forgiven. Now live like it. Pull back your shoulders a little bit. Don't be so hunkered over in shame. Rise up. Let's walk. Let's do this thing. Let's press in to knowing him more and living the Christian life with fun and obedience. We're celebrating something that's finished right now. You have been forgiven. That's killing me right now. It's rocking my world right now. Like I preached at the first service. It didn't matter that much to my heart. But right now in this moment, it, it just, it, it's popping in my heart. We have been forgiven. <laughs> and we don't deserve it. There's nothing we did for it. We've been forgiven. And friend, for those of you who don't know Jesus, man, you, you can have it. It's a free gift. You can be forgiven, totally forgiven. You can experience what it is your heart's looking for. Man, it's right here. Don't wait another day to experience the joy 
of forgiveness. So here's what we're going to do. The Christians are going to share in communion. And if you're not a Christian, or if you feel the Lord making you a Christian, even right now, I'm going to be right here. I want you to just come hang out with me. Let's talk. I want to guide you through what it's like. Through scripture of what it looks like to believe Jesus. So let's do that. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this radical gift of forgiveness that you've given to us. Thank you for this grace. Thank you for not uh, mocking us. Thank you for not leaving us. Thank you for graciously coming to us, interceding for us. Lord, thank you for not ignoring this man or condemning his friends for messing up the house and making a mess. Lord, thank you for saving him. Thank you for forgiving him. And also thank you for helping him physically. But that didn't help him but for about 30 years. What you did to his heart is even now, today, relevant. As he's with you, we will get to see this man one day. Lord, help us think on that. Lord, make us faithful friends who, despite being scared and afraid and worrying about not saying the right thing, Lord, make us good friends who understand what a rope is. Lord, let us use our words and our actions to get people to you. Lord, develop in us a passion for souls. Lord, help us redeem the term soul winner here at the Axis Church where we just have this passion, this, uh, this discontentment with the idea of people going to a godless eternity. There's something in us that has to interrupt in order to talk about you because you are what is most significant and important, Lord, what people think about you. So God, remove from us apathy, carelessness, indifference, and silence, and give to us a, a very real passion for people to know you. Lord, do this in such a way that it's, it's difficult to get to hell from Nashville because of the passion that we have to see people turn from their sin, press into obedience in you, have faith in you, be granted forgiveness, and now begin sharing that same passion with others. God, do that. Do that in me. Do that in us as a church. God, save, save these people that are here that aren't Christians this morning. Save my friends. Lord, give them the boldness to, to say, I, I'm not a believer yet, but I, I want to believe. And Lord, be with my friends who are Christians, who are about to share in communion this morning. Lord, forgive them, and would they call out for forgiveness, Lord, for the times this week in particular where they have found other places to lie down seeking satisfaction, purpose, and identity that's not you. Lord, help them repent there. Help them find in you what it was they thought could be found somewhere else. And Father, I ask that you bless this time of communion this morning. Add your special blessing to this. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This audio is from the Axis Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is part of our sermon series from the Gospel of Luke, Learning the Real Jesus. For more information, please visit theaxischurch.org.